coming up on Philosophy Talk. Something terrible has happened. What should we do with the canon of so-called great books? All of the kingdom's great books have disappeared. They've simply vanished. Poof! Books from the past often contain old-fashioned attitudes about race and gender. Why should we still be reading them? Those books contain all the lore and knowledge of our people. And all the great scientific discoveries and inventions. And the wonderful stories. If we only read morally perfect books, how many would we be left with? How will we live without the great books? Very poorly, I fear. I smell an evil plot. Isn't it dangerous to venerate books from the discredited moral past? Aren't there some books everyone should read? Aren't there some books no one should read anymore? Our guest is Julie Napolin, author of The Fact of Resonance. Reading the Troubled Path. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. What's so great about the so-called great books? Aren't they full of discredited attitudes about race, gender, and sexuality? Should we even bother to read them anymore? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ken teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, we're reading Reading the Troubled Past. You know what, Ken? That past really is full of trouble, and I'm not sure we should be reading it anymore. I mean, I mean, take Aristotle. Take Aristotle. He said some people are born to be slaves. I mean, th that's not just a bad argument. That's a dangerous argument, and it licensed cruelty for centuries. Well, Josh, okay, but there's way more than that in Aristotle, and there's way more than Aristotle in the canon. Come on, you really, you can't be suggesting that we should junk the whole canon because of one bad argument in one philosophy book. Well, it isn't just one bad argument. I mean, Rousseau talked about the so-called noble savage. You know, Horace denigrated women left and right. Dante sent gay men to hell. I, I mean, the more you read, the more the West starts to look like a... A history of prejudice, and 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 its books are just like a, a justification for. Oh God, you're way over generalizing here, Josh. I mean, think about I don't know Marx, or Simone de Beauvoir, or, or Du Bois, or Descartes, or, or Galileo. Come on. The Western canon's full of people who called for liberation. Liberations of blacks, of women, of the poor. Liberation from the church and the king and patriarchy. Gosh, Josh, so many people in the canon, they weren't defending the powers that be. They were attacking them. Oh, some of those folks talked a good game, Ken, but <laughs> did they really believe what they were saying? Thomas Jefferson saying all men are created equal while being a slave owner? I mean, the Western canon, it's its nothing but an apologia for oppression, plus, yeah, a few fig leaves. Nothing here. but that? Oh, come on. You can't really believe that. Well, I, I, you've got to admit, Ken, way too many of these authors clearly believed that straight white males are superior to everybody else. Well, there are the Greeks who are an exception, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. And besides, the authors, all these authors, they don't, they don't agree on, on anything. I mean... Take Mill, he, he, he celebrated democracy, but Plato despised it. Adam Smith loved capitalism. Jean-Paul Sartre hated it. Look, you can't read the canon as a set of, like, fixed answers. It's a set of questions. 
Well, okay, but who gets to decide what those questions are? I mean, not women, not people of color, not colonized no, subjects. You're talking about the way it used to be. Oh, until uh, like ten minutes ago. Well, well, you have to admit we have expanded the canon. Okay, I admit belatedly. I mean, W. E. Du Bois, Toni Morrison, Asha Jabbar, Chinua Achebe. Oh, none of them were in the canon when I was a great bookie back at Notre Dame. But they're all in there now. Okay, so why don't we just forget all the morally compromised dead white guys? I mean, I mean, there's plenty of great writing by modern voices. All that stuff you just mentioned, and it doesn't come with all the oppressive baggage so so let's just read that Wait, Josh come on I can't you can't be such a triumphal presentist that you think there's nothing to learn from reading the troubled past is troubled as it is. we still have uh, uh, we still have stuff to learn you, you're not really saying that nobody should ever read Aristotle's ethics ever again well you can read it if you like I'm just saying we have to stop venerating it as a so-called great book I think it's time to ditch the very idea of a canon. no I don't agree we shouldn't ditch the canon and we shouldn't ditch the idea of the canon. We just need to expand the canon and our idea of it. And you know what we also need to do? We need to learn how to read it. You don't read it for the fixed answers it delivers, but for the questions it raises. Well, I still have plenty of questions, Ken, and, and that's why we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to investigate what happens when great art turns out to have been made by terrible people. She files this report. When I was a freshman in college, I fell in love with author Kurt Vonnegut, especially the book Slaughterhouse-Five. It's an anti-war novel about time travel and fate. I could relate to everything he wrote about feeling like a machine. It felt like somehow this bitter, middle-aged war veteran understood me. Billy is spastic in time, has no control over where he is going next, and the trips aren't necessarily fun. He's in a constant state of stage fright. But I also noticed a lot of Vonnegut's work is filled with sexist and misogynistic tropes. His short story, Welcome to the Monkey House, describes rape as deflowering. Many of his female characters are freakishly one-dimensional. She was a dull person, but a sensational invitation to make babies. Men looked at her and wanted to fill her up with babies right away. You could argue this is all a clever satire meant to critique sexism. After all, Vonnegut writes beautifully about the importance of kindness. But if you read about Vonnegut's life, you'd be forced to grapple with a masterful writer who was also an angry person who could be cruel to his wife and emotionally abusive. Most art is made by and for men. Carol Hay is a professor of philosophy at UMass Lowell. She says the debate over what to do with work that degrades and objectifies is not new, but the Me Too movement has given it a new spin. For a very long time, right, we haven't really bothered asking how artwork about women actually affects women. Hay says that for centuries, female writers have had their work discredited solely because of their gender. Women are conditioned since childhood to relate to male protagonists and enjoy sexist literature. When we talk about what it is to be human, we are often in sort of smuggling in these implicit assumptions that what we really, like the, the person that we think of as, as, as a sort of generic human is almost always implicitly gendered male. But it's not just Vonnegut whose life and writing are problematic. Charles Dickens, he gets occasional flack for his vapid female characters. And he also tended to have his wife committed to an insane asylum so he could marry someone else. Ezra Pound and Richard Wagner, raging anti-Semites. Given how racist, how sexist we are, how homophobic, how transphobic, right, all of these things, right? Of course, like, of course that stuff's going to show up in our art. But does that mean we shouldn't read Vonnegut or we shouldn't teach Dickens in school? Mary Beth Willard teaches philosophy at Weber State University. 
She says the real question we should be asking is what do we do with work by artists who are bad people? She's still grappling with what to do with Michael Jackson's music. I grew up listening to his music, and I'm not that old, but my parents had Thriller on vinyl. And I think I wore that thing out. So there's a sense in which music sort of forms the soundtrack of your life. Then you find out Jackson seems to have been a pretty horrible person. In the documentary Leaving Neverland, two men accuse the king of pop of sexually abusing them as children. Jackson has faced allegations of child molestation for decades. He told me if they ever found out what we were doing, he and I would go to jail for the rest of our lives. Willard says it can be hard to separate Jackson, the musician who changed pop music forever, with Jackson, the alleged monster. Should I let my three-year-old dance to Billie Jean? Should I introduce my six-year-old to those songs to say, hey, this is, this is how good pop music sounds. This is something you should know how to moonwalk. You're an American child. Willard says these questions also depend on whether the artist is alive or not. Boycotts don't work so well for people who are dead. And some artist's work is ingrained in our culture and inescapable. Willard's advice? Consume their work if you still find it meaningful. But don't forget about the harm these artists cause. We have a tendency as human beings to idolize those people whose music or artwork or sports prowess we admire. But we really should resist that because somebody can be a great musician and a horrible human being. And I think that that's, you know, is the lesson that the kids are going to have to get. After all, if we tossed all the work from all the problematic artists who ever existed in the trash, we'd have nothing left. And so it goes. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McGee. Want to hear more? You can find the complete episode on iTunes Music, or for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.